beautiful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And just to be reminded in that song and in our very spirits of how important it is to understand that the Lord in which we serve has no rival, has no equal, and that we can trust him in all things. What a beautiful name it is. As we continue today in the second half of our lesson concerning Jesus Christ being the bread of life. It's important for us to recognize that we have the ability through our Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, to be secure, and to recognize that there is none like him. So I ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John again as we continue our verse-by-verse, word-by-word exposition. To John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. That's John chapter 6, verses 35 through 48. And if you found a sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, you have no rival, you have no equal. And we ask you to stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. And the word of God says this in John 6, 35 through 48. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, 
Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned to the fa- uh, from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. God told Moses to place a table for the bread of presence built in the tabernacle and then to stack on that table 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel as a reminder to Israel of his gracious provision for all of their needs. For the most part, only the priests could eat this bread, though in exceptional circumstances, it would be given to others in dire straits. We see one time David has to eat from that table, don't we? Yet, Anyone who ate this bread found out that this bread could sustain life for a little while, but it could not make anyone live forever. Israel needed a different time of a different type of food to find eternal life. The bread that they needed and the bread that we need, we're going to see in this passage this morning. That bread is Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Lord fed 5,000 with only five barley loaves and two fish, prompting that crowd to seek him out, not because he blessed them, but because he fed them. Jesus responded to their search and told them that they should not just look for a temporary fix, not just look for bread that perishes, but they should look for and seek food that lasts forever, which is the food that God has commissioned through the Son of Man to give his people. At this point, the crowd asked, "Then what works must we do to get this bread? You know, the Jews had an understanding in their Jewish belief that the law, the Torah, was the bread that God gives. So they're asking here, what works of the Mosaic law must we carry through that we will receive eternal life? Jesus does not discourage them that something needs to be done to receive this life-giving food, but he wants them to know it's not the works of the law, but rather they must put their trust in him. John 6 and 29 says it this way. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. In this statement, Jesus is claiming to be the one who ushers in the Messianic age. The Jews believe that the Messiah 
would miraculously bring manna from heaven. And he came, and Jesus does not dispute this assumption. He only says that their idea of life-giving manna is woefully inadequate because he is the real manna. He is the bread of God that is able to satisfy the true hunger of their souls. You know, this phrase, the bread of God, is just another name for the bread of presence. Leviticus 21 and 6 says, They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. It continues in verse 8, Leviticus 21 and 8. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, and I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. So what is Jesus saying, Pastor? Jesus is saying in this passage that he is the fulfillment of the bread of presence under the old covenant. Christ is saying, I am far, far better than the former bread. I am far, far better than any priest you've had previously. That he is the only one that they should be willing to put their trust in for their eternal substance and receive life, life everlasting that cannot be taken away. Christ Jesus proves without a doubt in this passage, that he is the bread of life. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious and heavenly Father, you have no rival. You have no equal. And we thank you for sending us manna from heaven. We thank you for sending us the true bread of life. We thank you for sending us your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your exact image. He is the firstborn of all creation. In all things were created for him in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is, be oh, he is before all things, O oh Lord, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life. Help us this morning, O oh God, to write these truths upon our hearts. Help us this morning, O oh Lord, to plant them deep within our souls. Help us this morning, O oh Lord, to engage our minds and then transform our behavior like never before. Help us, O oh Lord, that we may live out loud what we believe within our hearts, so that an unbelieving world might be brought to the true belief in our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. It is in the precious name of our Savior and your Son, Christ Jesus, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. Jesus Christ proclaims that he is the bread of life. He makes the promise that if anyone comes to him, 
they will no longer hunger and they will no longer thirst. Verse 35 starts off by saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He's picking up here, Jesus, from a misunderstanding that the Galileans are having toward him, having toward the claim that he's making that he is the very bread of life. So he says it again and he speaks plainly. He says, I am the bread of life. And our passage today is nothing more from verse 35 to verse 38, a sheer exposition of the truth of what that claim is and what it entails. This verse not only specifies that Jesus is the bread of life, but it removes another misunderstanding from the opponents of Jesus. I want you to look, go back and look at verse 34. When they make the statement, from now on, give us this bread always, they are suggesting that the bread of heaven is needed to be given to them again and again like daily bread. But Jesus is insisting, hey, this is not true. He tells them, he who comes to me will never hunger. He who comes to me will never thirst. Now, this same thought pattern runs uh, parallel to the understanding of John 13, 9 through 10. Let's look at it. John 13, 9 through 10. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash again except his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. You see, the person who's been baptized, the person who's been washed by Jesus, doesn't need another bath, but they need to wash their feet because we pick up sin all the way day in and day out. And he's telling these Galatians here that he's saying, Galileans here, he's telling them, so also the hungry and the thirsty person who comes to me finds their hunger and their thirst quenched and they will not hunger or thirst again. Now, I'm not saying that this doesn't mean that we don't need a continual dependence upon Jesus, for we do. We need to continually feed upon him. But what he's saying here is that Right now, because we have had this encounter, you no longer have the core emptiness. I have satiated you. I have given you a comprehensive completeness that only happens when you come to me and you come to trust in me. Those who have come and who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb Stand before the very throne of God. Revelation 7, 15 through 17. Listen. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst 
anymore. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne who will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a promise that one day the tears that we have shed in this world will be collected and presented back to us as the Psalms tell us because God wants us to know how intimate he is with us. I think there's three things that stand out here. Essentially, symbolically, we see the nature of the bread of life in this sermon that Jesus is giving uh, to these Galatians or Galileans. He's mingling here metaphorical and non-metaphorical elements. Listen to me. He's saying on one hand that he's a bread of life, but it is the person who comes to him who does not hunger, not the person who eats of him. Similarly, it's the same person who believes in him that does not thirst, not the person who drinks of him. I said this because you see a more aggressive metaphor in verse 49 when he speaks of the fact that eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood establishes a whole different understanding of the bread metaphor. Secondly, I think he tells us that he is a bread of life. Ego ami. The seven as seven metaphorical I am statements that are found in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. Jesus established a pattern here that is going to continue through John's Gospel. Jesus makes a statement about who he is, and then Jesus backs up that statement with some action. Jesus states, I am the bread of life, and then he feeds 5,000 in the wilderness. At the same time, he contrasts what he's doing to what Moses did for their ancestors. You look at verse 6, or rather, yeah, verse 49 and 50 of chapter 6. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. He says, I'm the light of the world. Jesus heals a man born blind, and he also not only says I'm the light, he becomes the light in the life of that man. This echoes Genesis 1 and 3, when God says, let there be light, and there was light. I am the door. Here, Jesus stresses that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven by any other means than Christ Jesus himself. He also couches this imagery with the fact that he's a great shepherd and that he is over the sheepfold and that there's only one way to enter the fold. He tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way. That man is a thief and a robber. I am the good shepherd. Here you see Jesus portraying his great love and care for us. 
the one who is willing to protect his flock even to the point of death. When he calls himself the good shepherd, is he not looking back on one of the titles of God in the Old Testament? In Psalm 23 and 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus makes this statement before raising Lazarus from the dead. He shows that his teaching is not just empty talk, but he can substantiate his claims with action. Why? Because Jesus Christ holds the key of death and the grave. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And he fulfills the promise of Yahweh in Isaiah 26 and 19 that says, God's dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is packed with meaning. He's not saying that there are many ways to God. There's only one way to God. He's the very essence of God. His word is the truth. There's not many truths. He's the truth. And he is the life. He is the very source of life. He's the creator and the sustainer and the giver of eternal life. I am the true vine. We find this, met- this final metaphor when he's saying, you are the branches, I am the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's two more I am statements in John, but they're not metaphors. They're declarations of God's name that Jesus applies to himself. John 8, 58, when he says, I tell you the truth, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He uses the verb to make a stark contrast. Abraham was, but I am. There's no doubt that they understood exactly that he was saying he was, a, he was God incarnate because they took up stones and tried to kill him. Then, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see the last I am statement. The mob comes in to arrest Jesus. They ask, where is Jesus of Nazareth? And he replies, I am he. Then in the midst of all of the confusion, something strange happens because when he says, I am he, they drew back and they fell on the ground. Jesus simply saying, I am, shows us that every knee shall bow and every tongue will one day confess that he is Lord and that everything and everyone must respond. You know, verse 35 of chapter 6 of John has a parallel that is found in Isaiah 55 and 1. And this is what it says in Isaiah 55 and 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Here we see the eschatological salvation being displayed here that the everlasting covenant of God's word proceeds out of his mouth. But Jesus knows his audience. He knows who he's dealing with. That's why we see in verse 36 these words. 
But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now, Jesus is charging these citizens with unbelief. And I want you, there's a similar charge that he brings against people in John 5, 36 through 40. Look at it for a moment. John 5, 36 through 40. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me that the Father sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and, you, and this is a big one, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Are you still refusing to come to him that is the only source of life? What other evidence are you possibly waiting upon? He's given us all that we need here in his book. So Jesus charges his his fellow Galileans, with the same sin of unbelief. And and think about what he's saying here. He's saying, you have seen me, but you've seen me in a human way as a mightily endowed man. You've seen me as maybe your potential king, but you have not seen me as a son of God that expresses the Father's word and also his deeds. You have seen what you wanted to see. You have seen bread and you have seen power, but you have no idea what that signifies. You have seen divine revelation at work. It has piqued your curiosity. It has hyphened your appetite. It has nourished your political ambitions. All of that has been aroused, but your faith has not been aroused. You have not seen me for what and whom I truly am. Have you seen Jesus for what and who he truly is? He continues on in verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So, Pastor, if some come to Jesus when they see his miraculous signs and others do not come to faith nor ever believe in him, does that suggest that the mission of Jesus Christ is a failure? God forbid, by no means. Regardless of how many people do not believe, unbelief cannot hinder God's saving purposes or frustrate them in any way because we serve a sovereign God. 
And you need to believe here in this passage, Jesus' confidence is not resting in the potential of positive responses he receives from these people. Far from it, his confidence is in the power of his Father to bring about his redemptive purposes. That's why he says, without fear of contradiction here, all, all that my Father gives me will come to me. You know, the second part of this verse is misunderstood when it says, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And the the reason I think it's misunderstood is because it's expressed in what is called a light a tease, light a tease, L-I-T-O-T-E-S. A lot of tease is really something that affirms, it's, it's, it's something that affirms something by expressing it in the contrary. I'll give you an example. When I first met Sandra and I go around my best friend Robert and he goes, is she pretty? And I said, hey, not bad. Now, what does that mean? That means that it's good. But you express it through a negative, right? Here, Jesus is doing the same thing. When he says that all of those will come to him, and whoever comes to him he will never cast out, he doesn't mean it in a way to imply that whoever comes, certainly he will welcome them. No, he says, whoever comes, I will keep them. I will preserve them because they would not come if my father had not sent them. My father has given them. Do you understand that you have been given by God to Jesus as a gift? And when he says, I will never cast them out, the word here is ekbalo, and it means to drive away, to cast out. And, in, and when you go back through the New Testament, in any parallel occurrences, you will see it always means to drive something away, but it always means to drive something away, to cast something out that is already in. And this, that basic understanding is important when we deal with these next three verses where Jesus shows us that he's the bread of life and that anyone who comes to him and believes in him has eternal life. Look at verses 38 through 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up 
on the last day. He starts off here as he introduces this passage. He's telling us that he's going to perfectly preserve all of those gifts given to him by the Father. And I want you to listen to the very heart of Jesus here in the response he makes. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's asking us, I want you to look at the entire purpose of my incarnation. I want you to look at the central reason I have come. I have come down from heaven not to do my own thing, not to do my own will, but to do the will of the Father who sent me. I have come to seek and save the lost. I have come not to the healthy, but I have come to the sin sick. I have come not to condemn the world, but I have come that the world might be saved. Knowing that whatever or whoever believes in him is not condemned. But who does not believe in him is condemned already. Why, Pastor? Because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And since Jesus has come down from heaven, not to do his will, but the will of he who sent him. What is the will of he who sent him? He makes it crystal clear, doesn't he, in 39? And this is the will of him, personal pronoun referring to God, who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He's saying here that he's going to preserve every person. And then he comes back and tells us in verse 40, that this is a will of my Father, that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and be raised up on the last day. You know, there's a couple of things, I think, that have to be lifted up out of this. We see the divine sovereignty in salvation. We see that John is not embarrassed by this theme He recognizes that, yes, there's an intersection between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of mankind. He recognizes that that place is where God simultaneously ordains both actions to occur. So he can speak with ease here when he says, if you look to the Son and believe in him, that you will have eternal life. But yet there's a responsibility for us to respond to faith. We see something else here. We see the incredible obedience of the Son, Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ would fail to achieve this goal, it would be to the Son's everlasting shame. It would mean, one, either that the Christ was incapable of performing what the Father has already willed him to do, or two, he was flagrantly disobedient to his Father. And I'm telling you, both alternatives are unthinkable in Scripture. Not that Jesus never experienced a temptation to disobey, but the fact that he never succumbed to it, that tempt 
temptation was unthinkable to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I think it's interesting also that in John's gospel he doesn't record the agony of Gethsemane. So you won't see the statement as Jesus cries out three times, not my will, but yours be done. But can you not see the fingerprints of that attitude and that type of obedience all over the passage that we're in? We see here that Jesus Christ fulfills the initial fulfillment of his duty to God. Look at John 17, 11 through 12. John 17, 11 through 12. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, listen now, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus declares that he's kept every gift that God has given him and that he's initiated this first fulfillment. And there's going to be more. He says that in uh, chapter 17 as one as well. That there be other sheep, John 10, 16. And I have other sheep, not of this fold, that I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. So what I'm trying to get over to you is that Jesus lost not one. Now you may, and, and Jesus has a flawless record. He's, he is, he's better than the Pittsburgh Steelers right now. But you may challenge me and say, well, pastor, what about Judas? Well, what about Judas? Judas was not an exception. Judas was an example. You don't believe that? Look at John. John 6, 70 through 71. John 6, 70 through 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke, to, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas was not at an exception. He was an example. Look at John 17 and 12. While I was with them. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That scripture might be fulfilled. Judas was not an exception. He was an example. Because Jesus never fails. At the end of this passage in 40, we see that 
he gives the same proclamation again, the same proclamation, the same prescription, the same promise, and it's not out of place, but it takes us to a certain peak because it's the consummation of our journey here on earth. It is the pledge of eternal life that anyone that he will raise them up on the last day and give them eternal life. Do you understand that eternal life is more than an ending, is really a beginning. It's a continuous of something that we have always been promised but never seen fully. It's passing from condemnation to commendation. It's passing from the acknowledgement of eternal life to the ascension to eternal life. It's the passing from belief in eternal life to the very beholding of eternal life because it is no longer a foretaste of eternal life, but it's the full banquet of eternal life that only occurs in the resurrection. Here, when he uses this verb, look, whoever looks upon me, that oreo, he means whoever beholds me, whoever views me with great intensity, whoever seeks me with great attentiveness, whoever perceives me with the eyes and enjoys being in my presence. They look upon me in that way and believe in me. They will have eternal life. In verses 41 and 42, he answers as some people challenge, challenge his deity. And this is what happens. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I came down from heaven? These are the Jews that were part of this synagogue and part of the one that was in Capernaum as well. They're grumbling here. They're displaying the same kind of unbelief and ungratefulness that their forefathers had displayed in the wilderness and complained before them. Look at Exodus 16, verses 2 through 3. Exodus 16, verses 2 through 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died in the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat down by the meat pots and ate bread to our full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Skip down to 89 in the same uh, chapter, 16 of Exodus. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you the evening meat to eat and in the morning the bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, said to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. What an incredible lack of appreciation and ungratefulness. The Lord has used Moses to take them out of slavery. And here they are arguing about menu choices that lie before them. But isn't that like we are? We have such a short memory of what God has already done in our life, how he's already spared us, how he's already delivered us, how he's already showed that if we cast our cares upon him, he cares for us. Here we see these Galilean Jews. And it's not so much now that the bread of life offends them or it's that he's a bread of life that came down from heaven. How could this be? They remembered when the U-Haul truck pulled up and moved them into Capernaum. They know their parents. What right does he have to claim to be divine or more nobler than they are? You see, the Jews thought they knew everything about Jesus' paternity. They spoke out of ignorance because they knew nothing of his virginal conception. They knew nothing of his true identity. Jesus had dealt with people like this before. Acts, or rather John 8, 42. John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. You see, they didn't see his true identity. They did not understand that he was the word that had become flesh. We see here as we near the end an incredible and important point comes up. The fact that whoever comes to Jesus comes because the Father has drawn them. Look at verses 43 and 44. Jesus said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I'm sure the grumbling was insulting, but, you know, it was probably more dangerous and just insult and insulting. The great commentator Lightfoot once said, so long as man remains and is content to remain, confident in his own ability without divine help, to understand his own experiences and the meaning of those experiences, as long as he does not come to the Lord, he cannot believe and only the Father can move him to the step, and then he will find the innumerable and final results of greatness. We see here that verse 42 is sometimes used by others to dilute the claim that is clearly expressed here. And what they're relying on, they're relying on John 12, 32, because John uses the same verb uh, to express 
the word to draw, hell kuo. And there, Jesus is talking about drawing all men to himself. Well, what you got to recognize in context there, he is saying that I will draw all men to myself without distinction, both Jew and Gentiles. Rather, that I will draw all men without exception. You see, when we look at the Father drawing, we understand that it is God himself that compels belief. It is not the savage constraint of a rapist, but it's a wonderful wooing of a lover. We see in Isaiah 54 and 13 that the Old Testament promise says that they will be taught by God, that all your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. But let's just look at verse 44 for just a moment here. It starts off with what? No one which is a universal negative collective propositional statement that says something negative about everyone who's ever considered coming to Jesus. And then you have the phrase, come to me. Here, this Greek word, or rather can come to me, this Greek word for can is dunamai, where we get the word dynamite. It talks about being able here, right? Dunamai means being able, having the ability. Do you remember in elementary school and you raise your hand and you ask your teacher, can I go to the restroom? And she probably said to you, I know you can, but what you mean to say is may I? You see, can denotes ability. May gives permission. Jesus is saying no one, no human being has the ability in and of themselves to come to me. He says, there's only one path, there's only one prescription, there's only one process that will ever bring you to this point. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. John uses the same verb, helkuo. And you know, helkuo means to draw or to drag. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder, was I, was I drawn or was I dragged? Well, praise God I got here, right? Drawing is that internal illumination that comes from God that's, that's commonplace in both Testaments. Jeremiah looks forward to the new covenant that God will put his law in the minds of his people and he will write it on their hearts. Ezekiel says God has promised us a new heart and a new spirit. Joel said he anticipates a time where God will pour out his spirit, not just on the Jews, but all of his people. The point I'm trying to make here, this is something that God does. It's the equivalent of anointing, being anointed by his Holy One is a divine illumination, and we will respond to it, period. It's illumination that takes us from the darkest places of our soul. It takes us to the end of our self-reliance, the end of ourselves, 
the end of our self-delusion, the end of self itself. And in that defeated moment, we reach up and recognize that our only help is found in God. Then God draws us, and some of us, he drags us, wounded and tattered and empty of all our strength. 46 here tells us that apart from God, apart from the revelation given by Jesus, no one has ever seen the Father but the Son, the one who's from the Father. Jesus is a mediator of all such knowledge. He's the one that narrates God. He's the one, he's a word that has become flesh. He is the one that reveals who God really is through his word. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing the word of God. Then we see as we end this passage in 47, 48, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Here, even though I think it's an implicit invitation to believe, I think it's an implicit warning against unbelief, I think it takes away any pretense or any self-congratulations that we can give to ourselves because we find out that it is God that has, who was seeking us before we ever was seeking him, that it is God who gives us faith that we might believe in him, that we might come to his son, that we might see his son as who he truly is, the bread of life that has come down from heaven. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just ask you to give us strength. Build us up on every leaning side. Let us recognize what a privilege it is to know you. Give us a deep and abiding desire to know more and more about you day in and day out. We want to know you in the power of your resurrection. We want to know you in your suffering. We want to know you. Not for what you can do for us, but because of what you've already done for us. We want to be like Paul. We want that that has caught a hold to us to keep a hold of us and make us desire to be fed from your very hands day in and day out that we might grow up in the true nourishment of the, your word that brings us life and life more abundantly. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.